This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Roz Taylor, broadcasting fearlessly but with common sense. On this week's podcast, Orange Hawk Down, Donald Trump's <laughs> hospitalisation with COVID-19 shocked the world on Friday. He's now out of hospital, but what will his diagnosis and the confusion over exactly when the president knew he had become infectious do to the election race? Plus, your data was only the beginning. The new documentary, People You May Know, tells the extraordinary story of how US churches use a Cambridge Analytica-linked system of big data to target poor and vulnerable people and radicalise them into far-right politics. Directors Katharina galein Viken and Charles Creel, a former advisor to Parliament's Disinformation Committee, are here to tell us how it happened and what it means. And tips for a second lockdown. No! As we steal ourselves for another period indoors, what advice can our panel offer to help you make it through? Banana bread and sourdough recipes not included. All this and more in today's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. We've got a panel full of political intellect and intrigue for you today. First up, Alex Andreu. Hello. Which am I? Am I the intellect or the intrigue? Well, you're a fantastic combination of both, basically, Alex. I I wouldn't want to split you into either. Alex, on Sunday, it emerged that 16,000 extra UK COVID cases were missed in the daily figures after an IT error. Confidence in the testing system is already at a painful low. How can the government get this in order? It's such a pathetic thing that happened. A, A data geek friend of mine said that the idea of using Excel for this kind of data crunching is like trying to make Toy Story 5 using PowerPoint. Even before this fiasco, only one in nine Britons were self-isolating when they were told to, according to one big survey. Are we giving people the the help they need to get through this, or are we just trusting naively in their goodwill? Well, it doesn't sound to me as if people need more help. I think people need clarity of message and regularity. I think dropping the daily briefings was a disaster. I think they need to return and they need to be science-led. And I think people need absolute clarity as to what they're meant to do. Because if you're not sure what you're meant to do, then the tendency is to in- interpret things quite liberally. We, I mean, we all do that faced with unclear situations. Meanwhile, Boris Johnson has used his conference speech to claim people who suspect he might be suffering from long COVID are part of a Remainer plot. Yeah. How, how does that work? It was an awful speech. Uh, uh, It was just full of red meat for his sort of culture war base. He said that uh, uh, our legal system has been captured by lefty human rights lawyers and do-gooders, 
he said that people questioning his recovery from COVID were just uh, uh, propagandists. I mean, it was horrible, horrible. And, and the, the summary I was left at the end of it is that we're going to be a brilliant country that has shed loads of uh, windmills, but no human rights. So, yay! Also joining us on today's show, we have the Atlantic staff writer, Yasmin Serhan. Hello, Yasmin. Hi there. Home Secretary Priti Patel gave her speech at the Conservative Party conference on Sunday, um, pledging to fix the broken asylum system and make it firm but fair. Are you optimistic that the famously liberal Ms Patel will do that? Um, uh, my first thought, I must admit, when I heard that was that it's an improvement to hostile environment, which was the kind of the first message I, I became familiar with when I moved here, <laughs> coming coming from the home office. Um, I certainly would think that, you know, th- there is an appetite to to have safer routes for people to come to Britain that don't involve, you know, thousands of people risking their lives to, to cross the English Channel. Um, as for whether I'm optimistic, though, um, I, I'm not so sure, especially kind of reading the reports um, that were coming out ahead of her speech, talking about how the Home Office had considered um, sending asylum seekers to Ascension Island, um, which I must admit I had not heard of prior to. Yeah, I wanted to do ask you briefly about that because there have been some pretty wild ideas coming out of the Home Office, including the, the idea about wave machines in the English Channel to push back migrant boats. Why why do they all seem inspired by the lyrics of Rule Britannia? <laughs> it seems like a really just, I mean, inho- inhospitable way, um, but also kind of cruel way to sort of treat people who, you know, are obviously taking what, what is a very dangerous course. I mean, uh, when I heard about Ascension Island, I didn't know what it was, so I'll do it. I did, of course, what, what anyone does when, when they're not really familiar with something, and I Googled it. Um, and, and quite remarkably, the, the first thing that comes up, or the, the, the initial description, is that it's an isolated volcanic island that's 4,000 miles away. But indeed, when I scrolled down further, the first news piece that I could find on this island uh, was a BBC piece from 2016. The headline was Ascension, the island where nothing makes sense. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> needless to say, it, it doesn't seem like the, the, the Home Office is, is particularly keen on ensuring that asylum seekers who, who do come to, to this country, um, you know, are, are necessarily given the best treatment. I mean, Priti Patel did say that this is, you know, this is an attempt to, to as you say, make it more free, more um, to kind of fix the problems that are are surely within the system as it currently stands, but whether you know the solution to that can be found by putting up wave machines or, or sending people four thousand miles away at the cost to the British taxpayer, I, I don't know that that's the answer. As I mentioned earlier, we have the directors of the new documentary, People You May Know, joining us from the US. Hello, Katharina Galine Viken and Charles Kreil. Hey, hi. Where exactly are you right now? We are in uh, Fairhope, Alabama, which is uh, Charles's uh, ancestral home, as it were. It's it, it's down on the Alabama Gulf Coast. Uh, we've just been down here watching one hurricane go by, and we're sitting around waiting for the next one to come this weekend. Uh-huh. Excellent. Katharina, we're going to discuss the film in more depth later on in the podcast, but can you give our listeners a bit of background? What is this story? Why Why does it matter? Well, so we started this story when Charles started advising the DCMS Select Committee on Fake News back in uh, 2018, if anyone can remember back that far. He came in and said Cambridge Analytica to the committee as the first person to do so. 
And I just thought, we have to document this. And sure enough, three weeks later, or I, I don't know if it was four, Chris Wiley came out with his testimony uh, on the front page of The Observer, and it rolled from there across headlines across the world. So I initially wanted to make a piece on fake news, but it developed into something rather more than that. And um, as we can see, uh, data has become more important, not less. And uh, the kind of institutions that will exploit the information they have has rather expanded since then. How come you decided to do it as a movie rather than, say, release it to the papers? What can you do in a documentary that you can't do in print? Well, uh, you have you don't have quite the same legal restrictions, first of all, <laughs> uh, depending on where you release it. You can also tell a, a wider story that I think people can connect with much more. I was very keen on making a piece that was a little different to your sort of traditional panorama investigative doc. I wanted something that people could relate to because uh, the thing about data is halfway through talking about it, people sort of start snoozing. I don't know if you noticed. Uh, we all go, oh, yes, isn't it terrible that uh, all our data is taken? And uh, so it, it has to have some kind of more weight. And I thought if if the audience can care about somebody, a real person, um, like a family man, like Charles, then perhaps uh, the message will land better. Charles, you've advised the UK government on fake news. And one of the surprises early on in the film is that you were responsible for taking down Alexander Nix of Cambridge Analytica. <laughs> what happened there? How did you know that Nix was key to this story? Well, Nix, Nix was key to the story because Nix was part of Cambridge Analytica. And uh, it was clear that Cambridge Analytica had been acting, or it was clear to me anyway, that Cambridge Analytica had been involved uh, in a number of uh, dodgy elections around the world and referenda more closely. Uh, so I thought it was really important to uh, go after him. And from what I had seen of him in the media, it was pretty clear to me that we were dealing with somebody who's somewhere on the narcissist spectrum. So uh, it seemed the best way to take him out was to appeal to that. You're experienced in disinformation. You worked on promoting a free press in Iraq and on counter-radicalization in the UK. And now we're in the middle of the US elections. How bad is the disinformation environment right now? Uh, well, it's it's incredibly extreme and it's very confusing at the moment as well, especially for people in the US and the UK, where normally we would look at foreign actors or uh, nefarious forces who, who are uh, conducting disinformation campaigns against our own countries. But now we have a situation where the most of the disinformation is coming from the White House. Uh, it's, it's a very uncomfortable position to be in. Firstly, in one of the most predictable developments of 2020, Donald Trump contracted COVID-19 late last week. After three days of confusion in the Walter Reed Military Hospital, with both the seriousness of the president's condition and the timeline of his infection unclear, Trump was released late on Monday night with an ostentatious return to the White House that the BBC described as made for TV. Alex, the first thing Trump did on his release was to theatrically remove his mask on TV and tell Americans not to let COVID dominate their lives. Mm. While he was in hospital, he insisted on a drive-by in a presidential limousine to see his supporters. Um, it's been described as both a hammer blow to Donald Trump and as a kind of bizarre boon to his campaign. Which is it more likely to be, do you think? Probably a bit of both. I mean, you have to start with the understanding that Donald Trump was losing. So he needed something that would append the campaign. And so this has done that. 
So in that way, it's a boon. But the idea is that the the pieces might land in a way that's favorable to Trump, and I don't think that will happen. So in that case, it's a blow. But, you know, that tweet telling people not to be afraid of COVID, I I kept reading and rereading it, and and I kept thinking, sure, if you park a helicopter on my front lawn, ready to take me to a private ward of one of the best hospitals in the world where a team of 18 doctors are waiting to give me a host of experimental treatments not available to anyone else, I'd be a lot less afraid of COVID. Many saw it as a form of karma for Trump's dismissive attitude towards the pandemic. And that produced the inevitable response that liberals in inverted commas, were glorying in Trump's illness. Is there a risk that we slip into schadenfreude here? I think it's different for people in Britain than it is for U.S. progressives. I mean, I would advise U.S. progressives to be very sort of uh, uh, low-key about this and, you know, wish him all the best. But because we've already had this with Johnson, I feel like British pundits expended all their energy uh, sort of wishing Boris Johnson all the best and a speedy recovery, hoping he'd come out of the experience slightly better, and he's come out a lot worse. So I, I'm I'm sort of done with being magnanimous on this one. Mary Trump, his niece, spoke about how America's chaotic COVID response stems from the fact that Trump himself cannot admit to the weakness of being ill. Incidentally, Johnson has also been accused of the same thing. What do you think this revelation and his drive-by wave to supporters on Sunday says about a campaign that's that's based on projecting health and strength? It's it's just narcissism. It's straightforward narcissism. The idea that that he's not somehow better than everyone else in any way is unbearable to him. He's the smartest, the richest, the best, the most virus-resistant, a a, a sex god, three inches taller and three stone lighter than he actually is, a a Nobel-winning scientist, an amazing author, a better soldier than those losers who died in action, an astronaut, he's John Wayne only tougher, Captain America only hotter, He, he has luscious hair and is really natural tanned. His entire brittle existence consists of the lies he tells himself. Up until that last line, uh, Alex, I was going to ask if you were moonlighting for the Trump campaign there. That was pretty (laughs) (laughs) Yasmin, when Trump was released from hospital, he tried to frame catching COVID as proof that he's a leader. Um, Is it futile to imagine this encounter is going to change his approach to COVID? Yeah, I mean, I certainly wouldn't hold my breath on that. I think, you know, his statement leaving Walter Reed Medical Center yesterday kind of said it all. You know, he told Americans, as Alex said, you know, don't be afraid in the face of this virus. I think his exact words were, don't let it dominate you. You know, don't be afraid of it. But he's saying that to a nation that has suffered more than 200,000 deaths and and in a country where not everyone has access to the finest healthcare. So I, I think he's he's not done downplaying it, certainly. I think the severity of this crisis, and I think he's trying to inject positivity at a time where there just really isn't any. Trump is one of many people in the White House to come down with COVID. His wife, Melania, campaign advisor, Chris Christie, former White House counsellor, Kellyanne Conway, aide Hope Hicks, they've all tested positive. Mm. How will these people being out of action affect his campaign? 
I mean, it's certainly not good timing, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, I think there's at least you know a dozen people within the president's inner circle that that have confirmed cases. Um, though, to be honest, I mean, given how close we are to the actual vote, I'm not sure if it derails the campaign in, in any major way. I mean, anyone who watched last week's debate can probably attest that one was certainly enough. Um, and um, <laughs> plus, you know, one would imagine that by this point, um, in what has certainly felt like the longest campaign ever. Um, American voters probably know who they're going to vote for. Indeed, American voters, many of them have already, you know, myself included, have already cast their ballots. So, um, you know, given the fact that the campaign has just changed so fundamentally due to the pandemic, I I don't really know, you know, I I think no doubt it's it's a setback and and the timing is terrible. And and I think for for both campaigns, it's quite uh, worrisome to know that that this could be a crisis that we have to deal with in in weeks um, until voting day. But, um, you know, in terms of the day to day, in terms of convincing people, I don't actually know if it's going to change anyone's minds. Charles, you're a United States citizen from Alabama. What reaction did you see over the weekend from other Americans? Well, I'm watching the reaction the same way everybody else is watching the reaction, which is through media and on Twitter. And I see a lot of hand-wringing and, as you said, nearly schadenfreude over Trump being ill. But I think if you go out in the streets and out in the streets in Alabama, folks who support him still support him. I think that they will take this message of don't be afraid of the virus to heart because they're they're worried about not having work and they're tired of wearing their masks. And as long as somebody close to them hasn't died yet, the message hasn't really hit home. Alex, Trump mocked Hillary Clinton four years ago when she had pneumonia during the 2016 campaign. And the Democrats have restrained themselves from acti- attacking Trump during this time, pulling negative ads. Is that the right decision? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm afraid uh, campaigns are a lot more boring, practical and granular than we like to imagine. I think the Biden campaign have gotten on with the stuff they needed to do and largely have refused to be brought into the soap opera that their opponent was trying to create. I think that's the right decision. You know, the the illness has affected the Trump campaign severely in a very practical way. He's lost days that he would be doing rallies and stuff like that. And uh, as I understand it, their campaigning coffers are running very, very dry. Yasmin, what do you think? Has Biden judges right? Yeah, I mean, what was it Michelle Obama used to say? When they go low, we go high. I, I say yeah. that because um, I, I don't think that they've actually relented on any of the negative ads against Biden. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely the move. Because, you know, I mean, there's not really a lot when you think about it to be gained from Biden going negative against a COVID patient. You know, the, the left already obviously does, doesn't really like President Trump. Um, they don't need Biden to convince them of that. And, you know, if it, perhaps if you're a Republican who's turned off by um, the president's negativity, you might not be looking for a left wing variant of it. So, yeah, un- undoubtedly, I think they, um, they they did the right thing there. If someone told you that your local church was using cutting edge data science to recruit you, shape your opinions and even radicalize your politics, you might be suspicious. But that's exactly what's happened to millions of Americans. A new documentary, People You May Know, uncovers the digital power behind America's modern evangelicals and its connections to a political organisation that is attempting to rewrite the Constitution according to Christian law. Directors Charles Creel and Katharina Geline-Viken are here with us. 
Charles, the documentary starts off in Britain, where you're working as a special advisor to the DCMS Select Committee on Fake News. Can you briefly explain how data micro-targeting works and why it's so dangerous? Absolutely. Um, So lots of data is collected about folks when they're online, as we all know. So all the information that's on Facebook, all of your activities on Facebook, all of that is collected. And it tells the collectors a great deal about you. That data will then be analyzed and they'll look for um, five different traits. It's called five-factor modeling. And from those traits, try to form a personality profile about you. Now, folks like Alexander Nix and Cambridge Analytica will say that with 300 data points, they can predict your behavior better than your spouse. And with just five data points, they can predict your behavior better than one of your coworkers. So this data is then all used to target you with media, whether it's through ads or whether it's in a more straightforward way in terms of algorithms, programming, what you see on your wall, you're targeted with media. And this is done to scale. So we have a new problem um, in disinformation and in propaganda is that to scale, we can individually target people and try to shape an entire electorate. So how did the evangelical churches use this data? So the way that they got involved with this is that a Koch brothers charity um, called Kofi and is now called Communio commissioned Cambridge Analytica and a software company called Glue to build a massive platform where they could target Americans based on their personality profiles, but specifically based on whether they were suffering from mental or emotional illness or distress. So are do you have any kind of addiction? Have you ever told your doctor that you're depressed or have you gone online and you've said that you're depressed? Are you under financial duress? Is your marriage under pressure? These were the points that were being looked for by the churches in order to target people with ads. And what they would do is try to pull them into recovery and support programs within the churches. And once in the churches, then these people would be radicalized for far-right politics. And it's not that far off of what people are doing in a much less data-driven way to pull people into neo-Nazi programs or Islamic State. So it's basically preying on people's weaknesses, isn't it? It's absolutely that, and it's, it's nothing any higher than that. It sort of represents a step beyond uh, looking at people's political preferences and then extrapolating from that and and, uh, thinking about what policies they might like. It actually goes much deeper than that. You try to find the person who's suffering the most, who's most convertible, and you bring them into your politics. You say there's a place for you here. You belong here with us. Um, And then you've made your own little evangelist. How did the evangelical churches get hold of this data? Did they pay for it? So there's a cooperation between GLUE uh, and, and the churches. So the churches will pay GLUE for the service. They have a program called Insights, and they're paying for Insights. And Insights lets them look at this uh, vast map 
of, of the country, go down into very local neighborhoods and see where there are spikes of suffering. Um, what churches are often doing is they're trying to look for the next opportunity to plant the next church. They're operating like McDonald's. They're trying to expand their franchise. This is a new big thing in American churches. And so if they find a pocket of suffering, then they can plant a church there. Now, you can look at this in a really positive way to say, oh, there are people that are suffering. We want to bring recovery programs and we want to bring our God to them and we're going to make things better for them. But there's also another more cynical way of looking at it, which is here is a pocket of suffering where we can raise some money. Katharina, there's a lot of concealed camera work and genuinely scary moments when you and Charles brush shoulders with some seriously worrying people. Did you ever worry about your safety when you were making this? Well, all the way from the start, when uh, Charles uh, kept coming home from the committee, uh, bringing increasingly worse and scarier evidence, and and they took a lot of um, evidence that wasn't in the public eye at first, then yes, we we did worry because, uh, as Charles says in the film, he he was given a lot of this evidence to keep. So all the way from the start, actually, that it was it was a little scary. But of course, uh, he's been protected because he's not been the front of the committee. And then later on, when he when Charles went by himself to to go undercover at the Council of National Policy, yes, uh, that was quite worrying. We had a, a four month old baby at the time. So uh, it was very much a, a case of, uh, you know, go at it on your own. And, and uh, if he had been found out or arrested at that point, that wouldn't have been good. It's, uh, it's not a good state to get arrested in. And uh, that place was full of Secret Service. So uh, I was worried. <laughs> I don't know if Charles can tell you if he was. Charles, were you um, worried too? Uh, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you but, you know, it wasn't Iraq. You interviewed a college student, Gloria Beth Amadeo, who was converted by the Campus Crusade for Christ International, which is also known as CRU. What did she tell you about the tactics that were used to draw her in? So they're, they're called crew. They're actually, uh, I believe, I've been told by a pastor, the world's biggest evangelical organization. They are based in many, many countries throughout the world. Uh, Gloria told us that they, they are out to convert the entire world. And of course, much as like with these church programs, they do do good works and they do do, they absolutely do bad things as well. And uh, some of their policies are that a woman should submit to her husband, that uh, being gay is a grave sin, uh, that abortion is murder, and and all of these things. So that that was something Gloria talked to us about. And she also uh, detailed that they started isolating her away from her family because they were a bad influence on her, her sister, her mother, her father eventually. Um, to and of course, where we see this tactic elsewhere is in abusive relationships or with psychopaths. Uh, if they start isolating you away, you are much, much more easily influenced. And what she also was talking about was uh, part of what Charles said, which is if somebody tells you there is a place for you here, you can imagine this big, beautiful, real life without uh, without any of the other interferences. You'll have children, you'll have a lovely family, you'll have people around you who love you. That's very, very powerful, especially when you know we all go through vulnerable moments of being young. If you're in debt, if you if you're in a relationship crisis, if you're suffering from anxiety, all of these things are mostly things we'll all go through at some point. So if somebody comes in with a solution, uh, I myself lost my parents very young and, and uh, 
I used to, I, I grew up with an evangelical family. And if somebody got me at the right time, uh, say when my mother died, I would have been hugely vulnerable to a message like that. Do you think something like this could ever work in the UK? I mean, obviously, we don't have the same network of evangelical churches with the same kind of power. But what about tapping into susceptible Facebook groups, for example? Absolutely. I mean, no, you're right. I mean, I think it's 40, 45 percent of the US population goes to church. And that's that's very powerful, both politically and, and otherwise. And we don't have the same thing in Europe. But this this is through Facebook groups and through social media, you're very able to recruit people. And now more than ever in a crisis year, we're looking for places to belong. So uh, we are absolutely vulnerable. I think with the crew program, it's really important to uh, recognize a couple of things about them too. One crew, C-R-U, is short for crusades. Um, The other is that crew has a really strong military program. And that's not only across the U.S. military, but it's across other militaries around the world. And they're actively trying to recruit soldiers who will put Christ before the orders of their commanders. Uh, And at that point, it becomes unnerving. One of the groups you mentioned is the Council for National Policy, or the CNP. And Steve Bannon is a member of that. So is Kellyanne Conway, who we mentioned earlier has got COVID and works for Trump. They're both members and they're looking to advance an ultra-conservative agenda, including a rewriting of the US Constitution. How do they plan to do that? Well, so this has been their goal for about 40 years. This is the most powerful organization you've never heard of, basically. And their original plan was to rewrite the Constitution by 2020. So they're a little late. But with eight years of Trump, uh, it's things become much easier. Uh, I'll let uh, Charles run the explanation he does in the film on how you might go about rewriting the US Constitution. Sure. So there's two different ways to rewrite the US Constitution. One of them is you do it through amendments. You go state by state, amendment by amendment. Um, It takes a long time. Nobody ever gets there that way. But there's another way to go about this. And this is by calling a constitutional convention. And this is a function within the Constitution itself. If you can get two thirds of state legislatures, and you have to understand America's seriously devolved. It hasn't even devolved. It's always been a very federated country. If you can get two-thirds of state legislatures to call a constitutional convention around a single issue, then this meeting will happen. Once the convention happens, then other issues can be tabled and you can re-engineer the entire document. Has this ever happened before? No, but it can happen. And the Uh, Council for National Policy has been packing state legislatures with their own right-wing legislators uh, since 1981, and they're within two or three states now of having of what they need. That is pretty shocking to me as somebody who assumed the whole U.S. constitutional setup was still fairly watertight. It's unbelievably shocking, and should it happen, it will slap. It'll be like being slapped in the face with a wet fish. Nobody will know where it came from or how it happened. But oh my God, here we are, and the the Constitution's being rewritten. Katharina, we've touched on how the church targets vulnerable people, and COVID nineteen means there are a lot of people out there who are feeling helpless. Have evangelicals shaped played a big part in? America's coronavirus response? Oh, yes, I think so. I mean, 
a lot of places here are offering medical help, for example, and, and as we know, Americans don't enjoy the same uh, privileges as we do with the NHS. So, and of course, again, it's the sense of community. Now, a lot of churches had to shut and they've had to, they've had to uh, adapt their response. And in fact, glue, uh, Barna glue, as they are now, started and crew started reshaping all of their materials shortly after the the pandemic and the lockdown to fit coronavirus and the response so now <laughs> a lot of them are offering surveys on a weekly basis to check how your congregation is doing now of course what that means is weekly raking of data rather than just when somebody arrives at your church so you can uh, you can see how they're doing how vulnerable they are have they had covid have they not had covid are they scared of it do they have insurance all of these things uh, as um, author ann nelson mentions in our film what the church becomes here is a whole institution that offers an alternative. So come come to our schools, come to our kindergartens, come to our Christian-based healthcare program, and suddenly you have an institution that you can't really escape because uh, it, it's, a, it's a completely integrated program where you're dependent on it at every turn. There's this other thing that's going on here, too, if we relate this to the Council for National Policy. So there's been a coordinated campaign in order to open up the economy coming from the churches and from the Council for National Policy. If you remember two things here, that starts to make a lot of sense. One is that the Council for National Policy is largely financed by the oil industry, uh, and second, that oil went into negative value at the beginning of the coronavirus crisis, we'll all recall. The timing of this documentary, um, just, you know, weeks ahead of the U.S. presidential election, I assume is no accident. Um, what are you hoping that American voters take from this film, if, if anything, as they head to the polls? So two things here. Um, first, we're independent filmmakers. So the amount of control that we have over the timing of the release of our film is a lot more limited than I wish that it were. But we're very happy to get this out ahead of the election. I, as people go to the polls, um, what I would like them to keep in mind is the ways that they may have been influenced. Whether you're a Democrat or you're a Republican, whether you go to church or not, it's really critical that you understand that there's been a massive effort here of harvesting your data, profiling you personally, trying to take advantage of any weaknesses that you might have, and to leverage you for politics within that. Understand that and then go make your decision. For me, I'm really interested in, in how the Christian uh, how the Christians will react because, you know, we're not just pre preaching to the converted here. We're really looking at the exploitation of religious people on a very large scale. And because there's so many religious people in the U.S., um, I'm very interested what that community will feel and whether even if they trust Trump or they trust their church, um, whether they will feel uneasy knowing that this has happened and, and how um, their information has been used. I, I have a question looking desperately for a little ray of light. Um, I mean, it seems to me that it's in its original conception, the, the, the USA was a, a secular state. Uh, I mean, explicitly it was intended to be a secular state. And I'm always surprised because it's so deeply ingrained at how new all this one nation under God and God save America stuff is. Is there 
any counter movement? Is there any movement to move the, the United States away from this religious fervor that seems to have, have captured it? I think you make a really good point when you say under God, because under God as a phrase in the Pledge of Allegiance wasn't introduced until the 20th century. These were often 20th century movements, and they're um, movements that are coming out of some theory from the University of Chicago about how um, political conservatives should leverage uh, moral conservatism in order to introduce their agenda across the country. Unfortunately, what that means is any move to re-secularize the United States tends to be with progressives. And so it just exacerbates this division between conservatives and progressives in America. Well, I do think that uh, the the fervor comes from Fahrenheit 11.9. He points out how liberal America really is. And, and that explains a lot of why this smaller but very powerful faction are working so hard to keep things the way that they are. So where and how can we watch the movie? It's on uh, the channel Sundance Now, which is an Amazon pay-per-view subscription with a free week trial. Um, and it's also on Fusion in the US. <laughs> Finally, are you ready for another lockdown? With cases <laughs> on the rise here in Britain and across the world, a second period of homebound isolation is starting to feel likely. But with the weather distinctly colder and the days closing in, this time it's set to feel different. Ahead of a further lockdown, we've asked each of today's panellists to come up with a handy tip in order to make being stuck indoors that bit more bearable. Alex, What's your tip for making it through a second period of self-isolation, this time possibly in Britain rather than Greece? Grow things. Uh, seriously, the, the comfort you can derive from growing things in your house, even if you don't have a garden, actually the weather won't be conducive to growing things in the garden. So anything from, you know, window propagation trays with microherbs to James Wong's beautiful and very cheap nanopond to large house plants to bonsai trees that required loads of fuss. When you slow things down and you're stuck at home, there is huge comfort to be taken from uh, uh, projects which change in minute ways on a daily basis. I've been taking the opposite approach, actually, because I've been chopping things down in the garden. And it's, been, it's been great. I've been filling big council bin bags with cuttings. And, yes, yeah, okay. Was... All right. Destroy <laughs> things. Kill things. It's your, it's your tip for lockdown. Yeah. Yes, Mean, how about you? What insights can you share ahead of another lockdown? Um, so although it's already getting quite rainy and cold, um, I'm going to lean on my early lockdown respite from last time, which was to go on long walks. Um, I think John Elledge and the New Statesman had um, a really good piece on this. But, you know, I think long walks are a perfect way to break up the day. You get to listen to the podcasts that you used to listen to on your commute. Just so now, if you're like me and you're still afraid of indoor gyms, it's a good form of exercise and it's immaculately well ventilated as well. Plus, if it gets too cold, you know, just grab a nice cup of mulled wine. I feel like we're already in that season. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to be going on a lot of nice long. I was a, I was afraid of indoor gyms before the virus. Why do you think that is? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not going. I mean, I kind of fooled myself into thinking. I was like, oh, now that they're back, I'm going to go. But I went once with a mask for like 10 minutes, but I could feel everyone staring at me. So I was like, oh, forget this. It's not worth it. I wouldn't be here in the before times anyway. So, And related to that, you need a really good coat if you're going to go on long walks in the autumn and winter because you just need that Gore-Tex. Otherwise, it's misery. So anyway, that's my small tip. Um, Catherine, you and Charles have a young child. Um, what have you learned from the last lockdown about best tactics for when you're stuck inside with a with a baby? Oh, goodness. Um, just don't be strict on yourself because it's you're, you're kind of just trying to get by. I think any parent right now uh, are just desperately trying to do their best and not give themselves too hard a time about uh, routines and, and all the things that you um, normally have to do. But the children can be... A respite from it as well you you have to get up every day you have to focus on them so uh, you have to sort of just think of your joys there as well I'm Norwegian so so uh, think like a Norwegian I think Guardian ran an article on this recently uh, with lockdown that you if the weather's terrible make the best of it you know go outside as much as you can I'd say alternatively drink like a Norwegian <laughs> They brew, spirits, they, they brew spirits in their bathtubs over there. So maybe that's the solution. Where, where from in Norway are you, Katharina? Uh, well, my dad was from way, way up north and my mom from Oslo. So uh, so I'm a child of both places. When you say way, way up north, are we talking Tromsø or? But above that. So so uh, there's, oh there's another half. Yes, there's another half to the country above Tromsø. Uh, so I've, I've been to Kotokeno. You have. Well, excellent. I have. So, uh, so. <laughs> So actually, Alta, which is, uh, I don't know, it's about half an hour from Katakano. Uh, it's, uh, yes, it's a beautiful and desolate place at the same time. And uh, yes, yeah. uh, it's dark half the year Ooh. and absolutely 24 yeah. hours of light the other, uh, the other half. So it's, it's a strange and beautiful place. Yeah, I definitely prefer to be there, to be honest, just for the change. Charles, how about you? Top tips. I think that uh, you're given very few tools to get through this life when you're born, and a bottle of wine is one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been um, I've been rewatching Bake Offs, rewatching Bake Offs with my eleven um, year old daughter, who is uh, just as into them as you could hope for her to be, and trying to work on my cinnamon buns because clearly there is no better food when it, try, it comes to trying to cover yourself in winter than cinnamon. Is that when it's too dark to destroy the garden? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And they're actually not that hard. And you've got you've got lots of things going on. You've got the yeast, you've got the rise, you've got a certain amount of creativity, but not too much. You don't have to make them look perfect. It's, it's the ideal thing, really. We've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics. Yasmin, what have you been doing to distract yourself from the health show this week? Uh, this is kind of inadvertent, but something that I've not been doing. Well, I guess I'll start with what I have been doing. I'm, on, I'm on, clearly on a documentary binge because I did watch The Social Dilemma on Netflix. And it inspired me to turn off my notifications for basically all my social media apps. So what I've not been doing is looking at my phone a lot more. It means I miss messages from friends, so I'm not as responsive as I used to be. But I highly recommend it. I think especially in these crazy times um, when, when your phone screen isn't lighting up as much, it gives you more time to do things like you know watch Bake Off or read a book or something, which is what I've been trying to do more of. Katharina, what about you? I think going for long walks with our daughter has been our escape for sure. Uh, we do read books as well. We love to read. Um, but focusing on 
on our child has, has really helped actually and and you you do it in a different way if you uh just turn everything else off and actually give them all the attention they need in the moment and the, our, our family walks have been a, a real solace how about you charles uh i have to agree with cat completely <laughs> <laughs> alex what are you uh, reading watching listening to I've uh, been binging on two series, uh, Upload, which I somehow missed. We, it's sort of between The Matrix and The Good Place and Brave New World on Sky, uh, which is very good. Have you read the book? Yeah, the Sky series is much better because it doesn't have any of the racism or misogyny. <laughs> yeah, there is one. <laughs> Quite a lot of that, as I recall. It was due for an update, put it that way. <laughs> and that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thank you to our panel, Alex Andreu. Bye, folks. Yasmin Sohan. Thanks for having me. And Charles Creel and Katharina Galine viken Thank you. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget you can back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. If you back us, you'll get a shout out on the show. And here are some now. Hello and many thanks from me to Tim Wilkinson, Simon Wright and Tessa O'Neill. Thanks and best wishes from me to Noel Run, Diziette Smar and Matthew Enright. And a big thanks from me to Nikki Bond, Carol and Richard Scott. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was presented by Roz Taylor with Alex Andreu and Yasmin Sahan. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison. And the assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>